An important aspect of growing as a Christian pilgrim is accepting our limitations. The happiest Christians are those who acknowledge and live in their joyful lack of divine power. I'm just going to say that again. The happiest Christians are those who acknowledge and live in their joyful lack of divine power. Can I just tell you something you may not know? We are not omnipotent, we are not omniscient, and we are not omnipresent. You guys seem surprised. (laughs) We are not omnipotent, we are not omnipresent, we are not omniscient, and neither is anybody else around us. Growing as a Christian means growing more dependent. It, It means accepting your limits even more. Not growing less dependent, not becoming independent, not growing up into some kind of limitless capacity. It means to become true humans, not superhumans. You realize the Lord wants us to make us into real people, real humans, made after his intentions, not to become some kind of superhumans that don't need him anymore. In his book, Sensing Jesus, Zach S. writes this, Great things from God do not remove us from our humanity. Great things from God establish for us that no one is God but God. Human we remain. The importance of this statement is that it reorients us to see the true nature of things. God is the one who gives every good gift. We are the receivers. Not the earners, not the givers. We are the receivers. And that which we receive, we do not really earn. The good things we have are not due to our own accomplishments or our efforts, but they are given to us from a gracious God who gives good gifts to his children. That's, that's the reality of everything we have. Now, I think being able to accept this truth that we are always receivers and never earners, that we are always dependent, never independent from God, it changes our view of things. Eswine goes on to add that when we accept our humility and God's gracious status of everything, bread isn't just bread anymore. Bread is a gift. God has remembered us. You realize that just a, there's a reality in which we can live into which every sip that we drink, every bite that we take, every breath of air that we have, every time that we put on clothing, every time we step into the front door, those things are not just merely things. It's not a mere house, not a mere glass of water, not a mere meal. It is a gift from God, visible evidence that God has remembered you, loves you, and provides for you. And as humans, we, live to, we learn to live in this great dependency in which we acknowledge God's gifts. It's in accepting our created status as recipients that we learn how to truly enjoy God's gifts of grace. A meal becomes provision. A vacation becomes God-given rest. A quiet night uh, in front of the fire pit becomes a gift of communion with friends that God has, that God has brought together companionship around this fire pit. A friend becomes a divinely tailored comrade sent to you to help you, to restore you, to help you. A life group is God putting you together with people, not who will sit there and clap for you, but who might actually chip away at you so that you are smoothed out into his image. A church is just the perfect group of imperfect ragamuffins to show you that you are not the most important being in the universe. 
It might be God's grace and provision. As recipients, we learn to taste God's grace and realize that it's sweet. You realize that most of the time that we live in bitterness, there's something that accompanies that. Bitterness is often associated with a lack of gratitude and thanksgiving. Bitterness puts the ball in other people's courts. They've done wrong or they've not met my expectations or it puts the ball in my court. I've not done enough or I failed to live up to my own expectations. But one thing it doesn't do, bitterness does not leave God on the throne as the one who gives every good gift. We complain about the church but don't thank him for it. We complain about our spouse but we don't thank him for her. We complain about our friends but we don't realize that it's a gift to even have friendships. We complain about the meal, but we don't realize that every bite that we take is a gift from him. Friends, the goal of the Christian life is to grow up in maturity, to become more dependent, to become more childlike in our relationship with God, and to realize that we are recipients who, has a, who have a good father who gives good gifts to his children. As a pastor, I just got to tell you, I, I live in, like, perpetually in this problem. As a pastor, I know the problems of the church better than you do. Uh, I, I struggle in life groups just like you do. I struggle in friendships just like you do. I sometimes complain and gripe that I'm not in the status of life that I want to be. You can ask my wife. I dip into grouchiness just like every one of you do. And every single time, I tend to forget that there is a good God in heaven who remembers me and gives me his grace. And that everything I have is because he is good. When I remember that, the complaining stops. When I learn to look for the gifts of my good God who remembers and remember that I am a recipient, not from other people, not from, not from others in my life, but from God himself. He is the Lord who leaves me not wanting. Everybody else, <laughs> you guys leave me disappointed. <laughs> it's just, sorry to say. And I leave you disappointed because here's the thing. I am not the Lord who is your shepherd and makes it so that you will not want. And neither is anybody else around you. The Lord is our shepherd who leaves us undisappointed and satisfied. And so the goal of the Christian life is to mature up, to grow up, to stop looking to ourselves or to others to give us good things, but to look to God himself, who's the one who gives good things. To learn how to look to him first and foremost. And I think this is, the, this is the message of Psalm 127 and 128. Psalm 127, 128 teaches us how to live in dependence, not independently, but in dependence in God. God reigns and he knows no bounds in that authority. And therefore everything from your sleep at night to the dynasties that rule the world, everything according to Psalm 128, even the marriage bed, even something as private and intimate as that, is directly due to the sovereign goodness of God. He sovereignly, his sovereignty extends to even the most extremely personal aspects of our life, like the marital bed, to our sleep, and then to the extremely public, like the city's security. Psalm 127 shows us the futility of doing anything without the Lord. All things depend on him. And then Psalm 128 follows and demonstrates how blessing is given to those who fear the Lord, who who pursue to have the right relationship with God. It shows us that God gives good gifts to his kids, and therefore, we should live obediently in his ways. 
Now, we're going to do both psalms today, and we're going to take them together because their themes overlap, and they teach a very similar point. But I just want to invite you today, as we read this, to accept and learn to be grateful for your limited human status. To not lament that you're not divine, to not be disappointed in other people who aren't divine, but to accept the fact that humans are limited beings who are recipients of God's grace, and it is God, and from God himself, who gives every good thing. So I just, just want to free you up from your own expectations to be God-like, your, your expectations of others to be God-like, and to point your eyes to the one who alone is God, who, who is beyond comparison with any other gods we might make, and to learn to look to him in expect, expectation and gratitude for him to give good things. Psalm 127 is the only psalm of ascent attributed to King Solomon, the son of David. True to his nature, when you read through the psalm, it sounds like you're reading something from Ecclesiastes. As the psalm progresses, it works from the more public aspects of life to the more personal. He begins by writing this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now keep in mind this is David's son, Solomon, which means that his use of house is very interesting. He's not just referring to a literal house. The word house can mean a literal house, but it can also mean the temple, the house of the Lord, or it can mean the dynasty of David. Remember in 2 Samuel 7, David promises that he is going to build God a house, a.k.a. a temple, right? God says, no, your son will build the house, but I'm going to build you, David, a house, which we've come to find out is a dynasty. Which one is he talking about? We don't know. Could be temple, could be dynasty. Either way, both of these redemptive aspects of God's promise rest on God alone. If it's the house of the temple then the fact that the temple is going to be built will not be due to hardworking men who construct it. It will not be due to rich people giving materials for the temple to be built. Unless the Lord builds the temple, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. If it's the dynasty through which we're expecting the Messiah, he makes it absolutely clear it's not because of the fertile Davidic dynasty that the sun will come. It's not because of the, the presence of armies protecting the Davidic figure. No, unless the Lord builds the dynasty that then gives the Messiah, then the laborers, the people that are participating in it, labor in vain. In every move, every move, whether it's temple or the promised king, all redemption rests on the Lord to accomplish I love the way commentator Jim Hamilton puts it. He says, God's kingdom will come by God's power, not by man's. Do you guys just feel the wave of humility that that, that, that just brushes over us? Just the, the, the fact that God's kingdom doesn't come by you, by me, or by anybody else. God's kingdom comes by who? God. It's a, according to Daniel chapter 2, it's a mountain carved out by no human hands. That means not, it's not built by us. We're not the ones that can progress it. We're not the ones that can build upon it. God alone 
must build up his redemptive plan. God alone must accomplish it. And as we read through the biblical storyline, we find out this is absolutely true. How is it that everything in biblical history works out so that the Son of God successfully takes on flesh, fulfills every Old Testament promise, dies for us, is buried, and then raises again to reign forever? Who does that? Not men, but God. The same is true for Jerusalem's security. If the Lord does not keep the city, then the watchman guards it in vain. The guards do not, they're not going to keep the city safe. It doesn't come down to Jerusalem's walls or its armies or its gate guards. The city's security rests in the Lord, 100%. Solomon says this to lead his readers to hope in God and not in their own power. You see, it's really tempting sometimes to think that redemption, God's kingdom, or even security in our lives depend absolutely on us. And it depends on us to make the right moves. It depends on us to do the right things. And then we begin to look at what we've built, our walls, our 401ks, our Roth IRAs, and our retirement plans, and our friendships, and our popularity, and our influence, and our social media presence, and all these different things we tend to look to for security and status. And yet, Solomon says, unless the Lord builds the house, laborers labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman watches in vain. You see, it is easy, absolutely easy. Let's just get really vulnerable here for a second. It's easy for us, and I, I know this, it's, it's easy for me, to drift into self-sufficiency, as if life and its success and its flourishing depended on my efforts. Has anybody else ever drifted into thoughts like that? Amen. Like just everything you have and everything you're going to have and all the peace and security. Like, like you wouldn't outright say it, right? I've, I've never actually said, well, <laughs> you know, depends on me. No, I've, the whole time while confessing that all things depend on God, my heart internally is going to absolute chaos trying to figure out what I'm going to do to keep it going. I've, has anybody else done that? I mean, <laughs> My mouth says something different. My heart is absolutely claiming self-sufficiency. But Solomon says this, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. A lot of people forget that pastors are men, um, and mere men at that. Uh, we're not immortal. We're not superhumans. We fall. We sin. We go in and out of our own problems. As a husband and father, I sympathize with my family's needs. I know that your family has needs. My family has needs. They need beds to sleep in, groceries to eat. They need insurance to help them if they get sick. And they need gas to go to school so that they can have a good future and a good education. Whatever else they might need to go. They need time. That's the biggest thing I figured out that my family needs. They need time. They need me to sit down at the table and play Legos. I didn't think that was a need. I thought that was just... Great, but I, I've come to realize that little boys need dad in the floor. Little daughters need dad to take them out for tea. Right? That's, that's, a, that's a need. It's not a, just a nice thing. I've learned that my wife needs me to hold her hand on the back porch. I mean, am, I, am I over-exaggerating it there? Am I saying it right? I mean, all you experienced parents, moms and dads? Okay. They need a lot. And I recognize that my role is to provide. 
That said, though scripture calls me to work and work hard, and believe me, it is hard work, it never insinuates that I'm the primary provider of my house. It calls me to provide, but it never dupes me into thinking that I'm the primary provider of my house. God is, isn't he? I'm like little P provider or little P protector. He's big P provider and protector. He's the provider and protector. There's a great danger making too much of my role. In my most stressful moments, it's when I've forgotten that I have a provider and that I begin thinking that I am the provider. When I forget that I have a protector and start thinking that I am the protector. The thing is, yes, I'm provider. Yes, I'm protector, but I'm not the real provider. I'm the visible mascot of the real provider. Right? That's, I'm the puppet. Okay? He's the provider. Only God can take on that role. Only God can do that. Only God can provide for my family in that way. I can't do that. And man, I have been, typically, you can ask my wife, my most stressful moments in life where I'm just ready to crack like an egg have typically been when I forgot that there is a real provider and I start engaging in my own attempts which are ultimately futile or futile, however you want to say it. That they're just vain. Typically, this forgetfulness, how does, it, how does it manifest in your life? Well, maybe it's the same in my life. This futility manifests itself when we begin to overwork, right? I mean, we, we all know the time. For me, the drift is subtle. But whenever I find myself unable, unable to put down my phone for long stints of time, to leave the emails alone during dinner time, to take a real day off, I mean, there, there, there's been moments and seasons of life that I just... I, didn't feel like I could take a day off. I couldn't step away. I had too much to do. The Legos had to be left alone. The tea parties had to be canceled or rescheduled because there were people, there are 200-something people that need something. And, and, and it's overwhelming. Can't, can't take a real time away or step away or turn off the phone. And anytime you see that in my life, something spiritual's afoot, a spiritual problem is happening. You just, you just know it. My wife has learned to look for it. When I cannot come out of the emails, when I can't stop taking the phone calls, when I have to leave the dinner table to actually answer the phone call, when I, when I neglect sleep to answer every need, the problem is, is that I'm not truly reflecting on the nature of who God is. You see, just as laziness is a spiritual problem, so is our tendency to overwork. Now, I don't think that Solomon is telling us that we shouldn't get up early or stay up late. I don't think he's telling us not to work hard. I think he's telling us to remember that we're only human. We're only human. You cannot work endlessly without rest. You cannot keep going. You have to sleep. There's a guy that stayed awake for days on end as an experiment, absolutely wrecked his mental health had physical ramifications for the rest of his life because he just took a few days from sleep. Just as an experiment. I think it is futile for us to pretend as if we can go on and on and on and overwork without rest. In fact, I think we'll find that those that are in a healthy relationship with the Lord recognize their limitations. They recognize there's things they can't do, things they can't fix, Places they can't be, people they can't help, needs they can't meet, needs they can't meet. 
There's, they have to stop. They have to slow down. The most spiritually healthy people recognize a need to rest, to step away and say, I cannot be that for you. That's, that's the way it is. And here's the, here's the irony of it. The people who acknowledge that they have received a true gift from God. The people who are comfortable in their limitations and their lack of ability to be all things to all people that way and to meet all the needs and to be the provider, protector for everyone, those people have received the gift, the real gift of limited humanity that depends on God. They have received the gift of a life in which they are not God and that he is. God gives to his beloved sleep. That's what it says, right? What does it mean if you sleep? What does it mean if you go to bed? Well, according to this psalm, you're loved by God. It's a gift. I have never thought of sleep as a gift before, um, before you know, I had kids and a pastoral ministry. Sleep is an absolute gift from God. What a strange gift that is. According to Solomon, God gives us sleep because he loves us. That's what it says. The, belo- the beloved, he gives sleep. Sleep is not just a mere restriction. It's not a punishment. It's not God setting breaks on your life so that you can always be frustrated that you can't keep going. No, it is a tangible evidence of grace. How so? Well, there's an author named Kelly Coppock, and she writes, he writes this. Sleep reminds us every day that we are creatures rather than the creator. God never needs sleep. He goes on to say, sleep reminds the believer that we don't sustain the world, but that God does. That's a great gift. To be told to stop acting, to be something that you're not. Those who are most at home in God's love are those who recognize his good gift of sleep and accept it. They accept their humanity. They put down their work. They take time away. They spend time with their family. They don't neglect their wives and children. But instead, they accept God's sovereign care for them. I have alluded to this already, but years ago, my wife and I recognized how difficult it was for me to shut down in ministry. Um, I think this was my first church that I was on staff at. Um, incredibly difficult. We had just gotten back from China. We were serving at this new place. I, now, looking back, I said then it was I wanted to serve the church well, but then it was also I wanted to impress everybody. I didn't want anybody to have negative feelings towards me. So I did everything possible to be accessible to everyone. It was a church of 5,000 people. Absolutely no way to be accessible to everyone. But I tried. Um, I didn't go to bed on time. I was staying up late, bringing work, home my work, you know, stacks of books like this, carrying in, because I didn't get a chance to write what I was supposed to write because I was having coffee all day long. Meetings all day, writing all night, going to bed late. Um, during family times, especially during dinner time, Rachel mentioned that I seemed distant and distracted. She would be talking, and I wouldn't be, I wouldn't, I'd be, nah, yeah, 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 you know how it is, because I'm still solving problems in my mind. I'm, I'm physically at the table, but mentally in the church office. When I first got here, I had kids, and I, there was a season that I dipped right back into that, and the kids would tell me some dad joke they wanted me to laugh at, and I would kind of chuckle, but didn't, didn't actually hear the punchline. I wasn't really there. Again, just drifting into this uh, self-sustaining, self-sufficient nature. After my wife and I both recognized the drift and that there was a problem afoot, I sought out help from a mentor. I gave him a call. 
Here's what he told me. He said, the first thing you need to do, Justin, is repent. Wait a second. I, <laughs> I called you to tell me, got a boy, way to go. Now make these changes and you'll feel better about burning yourself out. And no, what he did was he absolutely said, he said, you're on the path to burnout and it is 100% due to your own sin. Repent. I was like, whoa, you just, you made me the criminal. I was telling you about the, I'm a victim here. I'm not sleeping because you're, you're telling me that taking too much care of the church is a sin. He's like, yes, I am. And I said, okay, this is gonna take, this is gonna need, you need to take some time to explain this because I'm not following your drift here. How is taking too good care of the church, being too accessible, making too many meetings a sin in pastoral ministry? He said, Justin, you have forgotten you are only an under-shepherd. That's what James 5 calls me. I am an under-shepherd who serves under the shepherd. He said, have you ever thought that when people call you at 2 a.m., they're expecting you to do what they could do right there in their beds as they pray to God? Never thought about it like that. He said, yeah, you've made early morning prayer not a necessity. They can call you. Why do they need to talk to Jesus? I never thought about that. Yeah, every meeting, people tell you how unhappy they are in life. They come to you. They just know that they need to come to you. Are you subtly telling them that you are the shepherd and and making it out as if you can be the one that meets all their needs and leaves them not wanting? Or do you constantly tell your people that you're just an under-shepherd, skin and bones and blood and who will die and probably die of a heart attack if he didn't slow down? (laughs) I I, I never thought about that. He said, do your people know that you have limits? What do you mean? Well, do you tell them that there's time that you're going to not answer the phone? Do you tell them that you're going to sleep on time and consistently and keep a regular sleep schedule? Do you take the day off and because you have elders, shut off the phone and trust that if there's a big, if the church is on fire, there are pastors in the church who can take care of that? Well, no, I didn't think of it that way. He said, Justin, you have fallen into the sin of being God or trying to be God, and you're failing at it. You are not omnipotent. You cannot solve everybody's problem. You're not omniscient. You can't know the things that you don't know. If somebody's sick and they don't tell you, you can't care for them. How did you know? How could you have known? You're not omniscient. You're not omnipresent. You can't be at everybody's football game and their little kids' little league game and their band rehearsals. You can't be at everybody's birthday party. You just can't. Because you're not a human. You, you are a human. You're not God. You're, un, you're not unlimited. You are limited. And it was only after I started to see how much sin I was accumulating and not continuing to disappoint my church that I realized how sin it was. In fact, right after that, after about six months, I wrote an article. You can look it up on Google that says five reasons being disappointed with your pastor might be a good thing. And one of the things that it says is reason number one or two, I can't remember which one it is, is that being disappointed with your pastor reminds you that he is not your ultimate shepherd. It points, if I don't disappoint you, you have no need for Jesus. Now, maybe you have your own stories. Maybe you're accountants. Maybe you're uh, construction workers. Maybe you're teachers. Maybe you're homeschool moms. And you have very similar stories. It's just hard to walk away. Part of being a person that's enjoying a happy relationship with the Lord 
is to bask in and be grateful for your limits. To be grateful for God that you are a human. To receive sleep not as a punishment, not to get to the end of the day and go, oh, I've got to go to sleep, but to actually accept it as a gift of God. And after I repented, and I still daily, weekly have to stay on top of this because it is a tendency to listen so much to what other people think or to fear what other people think that I tempt myself into meeting their expectations and I can't. Man, I slept like a baby. My wife and I have started a spiritual practice where right before bed, as a part of our bed, bed routine, okay, to where we're gonna go to sleep that night, we're putting things away, there's no cell phones or screens. We're doing our best to stay on top of this. We don't do it perfectly. There's no cell phones or screens, no late night TV watching. We turn off screens. We might read a book. We brush our teeth. Why? Because our teeth will fall out if we don't brush it. I put on my pajamas and a robe. I look like a retired guy. I go to bed. I sip a glass of well-rested tea. And then right as I'm about to drift off to sleep, I close my book my wife and I pray a prayer of thanks. Thank you, God, for this gift that you're about to give us. We pray that we drink deeply of this sleep because it is proof that you love us. And if I'm still awake to say amen, we say amen and then we roll off the bed. And so, have you ever thought about God's sovereignty in that way, that he is absolutely sovereign over massive redemptive events, whether it's the temple, whether it's the dynasty, and over personal events like your sleep? Even down to the fact that you fall asleep is a sovereign gift from God. And to learn to be grateful for that evidence that you are limited and that he is not, that he is a giver and you are a recipient, that you sleep and he never will. You can close your eyes because he never does. How great news is that? Something to rejoice in. It goes even further. Just as sleep is tangible evidence of God's love, so also children are visible evidence of blessing. He calls them a heritage. They're a fruitful reward and arrows in the hands of a warrior. God preserves his people and one of the many proofs of love that he gives them is sleep and children. Now, ultimately, this goes back to God's intention to fill the earth with image bearers of himself. We uh, talked this morning in Sunday school that families are God's idea from the beginning, that he is the relational God who made us to be families. He's the father of all families. He's the one who invented marriage and thereby invented having children. To have children is a blessing, a gift from God. Now, I think some nuance is needed here. There are some of you here that have tried for years and years and years and years to have children and can't. That doesn't mean you're not blessed. Children are one of the ways, one of the many ways, manifold ways, that God blesses his people. If you don't have children, it's not because God hasn't blessed you. He just blessed you in a different way. And I think it's also important to remember that as a church, we're a family. Like in Brothers and Sisters in Christ, we're a family. That's one of the reasons why when somebody gets presents, when somebody gets presents, when somebody gets the gift of children, we throw a party for them. Why? Because it's a family affair. It's a community. These children being born into the church are children being born into the family of God. We're aunts and uncles and grandparents, even if it's spiritual sense. 
may not have any kind of physical bond with these children, but the same way, we are the ones that they will grow up in a community with. They'll be watching you. Steve Ivy took out Timothy, my, my oldest, last week. Oh, it's the most beautiful thing, watching Uncle Steve come up and Timothy's grabbing his wallet because he's gonna fight with Steve to pay for the ice cream. And then Steve's like, well, Timothy told me a lot, and I'm so excited about it. I'm like, what did he tell you, Steve? You know, it's amazing just to watch this old guy, and uh, you know, uh, graciously old guy, wherever you are, <laughs> nobly old guy, and my young nine-year-old son, who have no other form of connection. They're not family in the sense of like blood bond, but nothing's better than going out to Uncle Steve and having ice cream. So, in a sense, Timothy was a gift to this church, but he's a gift to many people in this church because children are a heritage from the Lord. And so as we engage in this family, we recognize that even if the blessing isn't given directly, directly to us, there are many other blessings, and the blessing is still given to us because we're in the same family of God. So all that to say, Psalm 127 wants to paint this picture of God being the one who gives. He's the one who gives the dynasty and the redemption. He's the one who will make the Messiah come. He's the one who gives security in the city. He's the one who gives his people sleep and rest and who helps them acknowledge their need to rest. He's the God who brings children into families. He is the absolute giver and we are the recipients. Now Psalm 127 follows, Psalm 128 follows, by telling that all this is for those who fear the Lord. Psalm 127 puts us in the proper position. We're the recipients, God is the giver. Psalm 128 does the same thing, but it shows us a little bit more about these givers. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in his way. Now the word for blessed here in Hebrew is aser, which can, can actually be translated as happy. So happy is everyone who fears the Lord. For the psalmist, I think it's important to see that happiness begins with living in peace with God and it overflows into enjoying, God's, enjoying one's work, the family, and living in the city. A happy person, according to Psalm 128, is one who fears and obeys the Lord and enjoys the simple gifts he gives. The simple gifts. We don't know how big this guy's house was we don't know how many children he had. We don't know what mode of transportation, whether there was a horse or a donkey, whatever it was. We just simply know that he is a man who lives in the fear of the Lord. He's happy as he obeys and as he enjoys the simple gifts of God. Now, whenever scripture says fear the Lord, it's always referring to living in a right relationship with God. It means that we recognize his godhood, his holiness, his sovereign authority, and we live accordingly. That may seem strange to you to describe a healthy relationship with God as one of fear. Like, if we are talking about a healthy relationship with God, why would we say fear of the Lord? However, the psalmist doesn't use the word fear as in this typical, oh, there's a boogeyman in the closet, so you back away. It's not fear in that sense. It's this trembling acknowledgement of the Lord's greatness. This is overwhelming awe of who God is. It's not like Israel at Mount Sinai where they fear the Lord back away because they're scared of his voice. Instead, it's a fear that causes us to tremble and to draw near to God. Michael Reeves, uh, with the help of Spurgeon, explains, the trembling fear of God is the way of speaking of the intensity of the saint's love for and enjoyment of all that God is. 
Right fear falls on its face before the Lord and falls leaning towards God. So what is the fear of the Lord? It's the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of himself in all his grace and glory. When we fear the Lord, we recognize his beauty, his glory, his majesty of all that he is, and we love him for it. It's the beauty that causes us to tremble and then obey, to want to be near in this trembling adoration of who God is. According to the psalm, those who live in this proper fear of the Lord are those who are blessed. When we have a good and healthy relationship with our good God, that is the pinnacle of what it means to blessing, the fountainhead of blessing. That is the most important part of being blessed is to be in a right relationship with God. Now again, as was true with Psalm 127, Psalm 128 teaches us that we are to live in a proper dependence upon the Lord. We live in a proper dependence on him, acknowledging his role as creator, provider, and sustainer. We fall toward him. Now, though Psalm 127 told us not to make an idol of our work, right, and that we had to step away and we had to sleep, it was vain. It was vanity. It was futility to continue working, to get up early, to go to bed late, and to act like we don't need to sleep. So Psalm 127 tells us not to make work an idol, but Psalm 128 falls and says, Enjoy your work as a gift from God. Don't make it a God. Make it a gift from God. Acknowledge it as a gift from God. You see, when you make good things gods, they become demons. And they only stop becoming demons in your life. I don't mean that in the literal sense. They stop becoming these bad, sucking things that shrivel you up in your life when you cease to make them gods. When work is a gift from God, you might then enjoy it. But when work is God, is a terribly unforgiving taskmaster. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 24 talks about the vanity of our work, the futility, the vapor-like nature of working to keep temporal things. And then he says this, there is nothing better for a person that he should eat, drink, and find enjoyment in this toil. Toil is not so that you can gain these temporary things and keep them forever. Toil is for enjoyment now as a gift from God. He says, This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? In other words, he's given you this work as a gift. It's like he gives sleep as a gift. He gives work as a gift. And we must acknowledge it as a gift before we can actually enjoy it. It's God alone who brings enjoyment from our work. Our work, when properly positioned as a gift and not a God, is a demonstration of God's grace. We labor, we work hard, we plant the seed, and then we go to bed. It's God who gives the sunshine, God who gives the rain, God who gives the growth, and God is the one who brings it to fruit. But oftentimes we labor as if we're the ones that do all these things. We plant the seed, we go to bed, and God gives the growth. Psalm 128 takes it even further. God is sovereign over our work. He's the one that brings it to fruit. And yet he is also sovereign over the marital bed. I'm not afraid of saying this here in church because if sex should be talked about anywhere, it should be from a biblical perspective behind the pulpit. So don't try to hide your kids' ears. They need to hear it here first. What happens in the marital bed is a gift from God. Amen or not? It is God who makes one's wife like a fruitful vine. It is God who makes the children like olive trees. He's the ultimate gardener 
who prunes, who grows, who flourishes, and who brings things to fruit. He's the reason you have a family. He's the father over all families. He's create, families exist because of the overflow of God's love. If you have a family, it wasn't because you made it so. It might have seemed like you were the one that was giving the proposal. It might have seemed like you were the one who made the children. You weren't. Families are the gift of God. Even your marriage, but that intimacy that you feel there, the children that comes from it, the love that exudes from that, all that's a sovereign gift from a very gracious and good God who didn't want you just to exist, but who wanted you to rejoice to celebrate, to enjoy. In Psalm 127, Solomon says that unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman guards it in vain. Psalm 128 says that it is the Lord who blesses and sends prosperity to Jerusalem, making it so that his people see even their children's children. It is the Lord who pours out blessing upon his people. Now, you might be wondering how this applies to us you know, we, we read this psalm and we see three things. We see land, right? That's what we see in the labor and the fruit. It's got this image of field and planting and all this kind of stuff. We got land, we got seed, which is the uh, marital bed and the children that come from it. And we have blessing, blessing over Jerusalem and the shalom of Israel. Land, seed, blessing. I wonder where we've seen that before. That's the Abrahamic covenant. That's the promise that God made to Abraham that he would give Abraham and his family land, seed, and blessing. Well, my friends, uh, in addition to this, God has fulfilled that Abrahamic covenant in Christ. He is the one who has given those things, land, seed, blessing, through the death of Christ, through the resurrection of Christ. And then we get to Galatians, and we find out according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, that if you belong to Christ, that if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. And listen to what he says, Heirs according to the promise. That means Psalm 28 is yours. Psalm 20, we're the happy people that have been brought into a right relationship with God. Not because we have worked hard enough, not because we have earned it, but by the sheer grace of God, we have been brought into a proper relationship with the Lord, and now we can enjoy the simple blessings of God. My friends, as much as it's tempting for me, to see my children come running down the hall and think, oh, goodness, I don't have the energy for this. To see them as gifts with legs. You know, one thing I found is that you don't truly see how a gift children are until you either lose them or they grow up. My friends, we talked about this last week about sitting on the back porch and enjoying the breeze and the trees and daydreaming about all the good gifts that God is gonna give us now. Well, we should dream about the gifts that are come, but not at the expense of seeing the good gifts we have now. Have you ever looked at your, into your wife's eyes or your husband's eyes and stared deeply and just told them, I am really thankful God gave you as a gift to me? It's easy to complain about the state of the dishes. It's easy to complain about the floor. It's easy to complain about all the ways they drive us crazy. It's easy to look into their eyes and see where the mascara runs. It's easy to do all that. And yet, 
it takes a true acceptance that we are receivers and that God is a good God. When I give my children a present, I don't want them, if, especially if I wrapped it, I don't want them to pay attention to the wrapping. I want them to see the goodness of the gift, the beauty that's right there. My friends, we, we walk around all day long. Oh, goodness, life is to be mourned and everything's sad and broken and right there in front of our eyes are good gifts from God. Spouses and children and sleep, security and peace, salvation, joy, a future, an inheritance to come, the spirit indwelling us, giving a foretaste. What do you mean God doesn't do good things for you? Yes, we should think about the goodness to come in the future, but look at the little one sitting in this room and see the goodness that's been given. Look at the friend you're sitting next to. Look at the spouse you're holding hands with. Think about the night's rest that you have and the night's rest you're gonna have tonight. Think about your place, your location in Christ. And pretty soon you begin to see just how blessed you are. My family dinner table, man, there's never a dinner there. Never a week goes by that my wife and I do not have stress. I have some insomniatic nights where I don't sleep well. But here's the thing. It takes time and it takes intentionality to allow ourselves not to be gods, to allow ourselves not to be immortal, invincible, eternal, but to actually stop and hold the hand of the gift to get down in the floor in the pallet and watch a movie on Friday nights and get popcorn everywhere. I mean, it's, I, I've just learned this with the church. You know, if you were to ask me even two years ago what my feelings about church life was like and ministry was like, you'd hear more negatives than you would hear positives. The problem isn't that I need to overlook the negatives. The problem is, is that I'm overlooking the evidences of grace. That's the issue. It's not that I'm looking at, I do think there's negatives there. My, my children have character flaws. My wife has character flaws. I have character flaws. They're there, they're real. But so is the evidence of gold and grace. You see, it takes intentionality to look beyond dross and to see gold. It takes intentionality to stop and get off our high horse and to actually say, I'm the recipient of God's goodness. To, to have the humility to say, I have received good from him. Maybe the reason we don't feel blessed is we just don't look for it. My friends, Jesus, the son of God, died for you, took away your sin, so that there is now no condemnation for you in the presence of God. Which means when he sees you, he doesn't see your acts of sexual sin anymore. He doesn't see the ways you were prideful in the past. He doesn't see the way that you shouted at your spouse or the way that you wanted to kick your kid or anything like that. He doesn't see any of that because it's been covered in blood. He sees you, don't kick your kid, that's a very bad thing. You will be reported. <laughs> but he sees all that, he sees it as paid for, covered in Jesus. And now he sees you as his son. 
Jesus didn't stay dead, he rose again. And he guaranteed that there would be a place for you for all eternity so that for all eternity you would receive the richness of God's grace and kindness, dish after dish after dish of God's goodness being given to you like an unlimited buffet of awesomeness. My friends, let me just tell you the good news. You are human, you are limited, you are a receiver, not an earner. You are always the debtor and never a deserver. God alone is God. Now, receive that as good news and enjoy the blessings you have in Christ who has given you every spiritual blessing, raising you from the dead to be seated with him and who has given even more abundantly to think that he saved us from our sin and then say, mm, there's more to come. You can have a wife. You can have a husband. You can have kids. You can have a family. I'm gonna give you sleep tonight. Just wave after wave to show, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. We're just tone deaf to it. Let's open up our ears, open up our eyes and begin to look for the good grace of God that we have in Jesus Christ. Psalm 127 and 128 teaches us as pilgrims how to be dependent children who have an awesome and amazing good Father. Let's pray. Father God, in our time together, I pray that you will help us to remember that we are always recipients. We are never providing for ourselves. That which we have is not from ourselves, it's from you. And so Father, I pray that as we dwell on the good gifts that you have, that you will help us to look around us and to see those things as grace. Even sleep, Father. Even our children, even our spouses. Even the beds we sleep in, the dinner table we eat at. Every bite of food that we take in, this lunch we're about to partake in as we go out our separate ways. Water that we drink to be sustained. The wine that we drink just to enjoy a taste. The coffee we drink to enjoy the goodness in the morning. All those things, Father, are evidence that you do not forget your people, but you remember us and you love your children. Lord, let us be grateful for that. And I pray this in your son's name, amen.